Welcome to Begin Where You Are, a podcast from Covenant Presbyterian Church focused on discipleship. My name is John Wasson, and I get to serve as one of the pastors here. Begin Where You Are is the answer to a question that I get asked a lot. Uh, We're all searching for concrete ways to live out our faith, and and it's not always clear where we should begin. Uh, There are a lot of different entry points to the life of discipleship. So this podcast is an invitation to uh, begin where you are, and hopefully we can provide some resources and practices that are useful to you. Our first series is focused on the Bible. We're preaching our our way through the Bible this summer, and we've invited all of you to read along with us. And you can find resources as well as a reading schedule online at covenant.org slash stories dash of dash God. One of the resources we've provided is a roadmap with five signs to help you navigate the territory of Scripture. And uh, in each of our podcast episodes, we'll explore one of these signs. My guest today is Christy Lang Hurlson. She is a practical theologian who focuses on religious education and formation. She also is a Presbyterian minister, and uh, she earned her Ph.D. from Princeton Seminary. Um, she's about to join the, the faculty of Villanova University with, uh, with a great basketball program, um, but more <laughs> importantly, a good Augustinian school. Um, so, uh, some of her research focuses on biblical literacy, what it is, and, and how different people think about it, and, and how we teach or learn it. So thanks for joining us today on the podcast, Christy. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So uh, I mentioned to you that we're preaching through and and reading through the Bible as a congregation this summer. And so we're doing this podcast to kind of help get our heads around what the Bible is, how we should read it. And uh, one of the resources that we've provided along the way is is a roadmap. Um, Rowan Williams says that the the Bible is the territory in which we expect to hear God speaking to us. So kind of taking mm-hmm. that idea of, of territory, well, what, we kind of need a map to navigate this territory well. And so we're taking an episode of, of the podcast, and we're exploring um, each of these five signs. So this episode, mm-hmm. we're, we're going to explore the sign, um, texts of Scripture rarely mean one thing, limited to the intent of the original author. Just as God has spoken His Word in diverse cultural situations, we're confident that God will continue to speak through the Scriptures in a changing World and that that last part's actually taken from the um, I think the Confession of 1967 in our mm-hmm. our PCSA confessions. So I thought we could explore this a little bit today in our conversation. Um, just what is this what is this roadmap all about? Um, but before we get to that idea specifically, I, I've started each of these interviews by asking whether or not this is a good idea, uh, whether or not mm-hmm. reading through the Bible in a summer in 12 weeks is is a good idea. And I I have to say like I was cynical at the beginning. Seems like a lot up front, um, and yeah. I've talked to people. You know, we're 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 now uh, in. Uh, I think we just we just as we're recording this podcast, we just moved past um, King David, <laughs> so we're yeah. already yeah. like we're already close to the prophets, and yeah. you know, it's a lot. <laughs> right. So I'm just wondering, you know, some something in your research with biblical literacy makes me think that. Maybe you have a different take on this, whether or not this is a good idea. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it reminds me a little bit of how the author Kathleen Norris talks about when she first went back to church after many years away, and she would sit through a worship service, 
hearing all of these liturgical words and the movements and just taking it all in. And then she'd go home and she'd take a three hour nap because (laughs) she just found it so rich and so exhausting. There's so much there. There's so much to engage and so much that might not strike you uh, the same each time. And so you just have to constantly process it. So I have the sense that um, anyone who's trying to read the entire Bible in one 12-week period is going to um, both have this sense that, wow, this is rich and maybe richer than anything I'd understood before, but it might also be a bit exhausting for some of your readers. And um, and, and that's okay, too. So take <laughs> but, lots, but lots of naps. Lots of naps. That's right. Uh, but, you know, I think it's, a, it's an interesting idea for some other reasons, too. Um, you know, our, our early Protestant forebears read really big chunks of the Bible in their worship services. And uh, that continued through the um, Puritan period in, in the colonies here. So, Christians have certainly, in other places and other times, read large pieces of the Bible and tried to get through the whole thing in a year. And um, and also uh, people living in monasteries and convents in the Middle Ages and up to today have read large swaths of the Bible through the whole year and um, and memorized it in that way. Um, so I so I think it connects us to our past in a way that is pretty exciting. Uh, and, you know, our, our Jewish brothers and sisters often read large portions of Scripture in in their services, um, sometimes in Hebrew and sometimes not, depending on their tradition. But um, that it, I think it can make a big difference in how you can think about the whole picture. Um, but you'll also hear stories and learn things that you didn't know that you'll then sort of hear referred to in other places or that you see picked up in liturgical services Uh, in the liturgical year. And um, that can be exciting too. I think it has the potential to illuminate your Christian practice and help you understand your neighbors better. So Mm. um, I congratulate you. I think it's a great project. So connect it, connect this to, and we can talk a little bit more later in the interview about uh, your dissertation. Um, But like, is, do you think this is getting us anywhere in terms of improving biblical literacy, this kind of reading um, or is this, uh, you know, what I hear a lot, uh, it seems like, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your, your research on this, that, that literacy mm-hmm. has gone down, biblical literacy has gone down. Um, and so is this, is this practice something that could improve our biblical literacy or, um, is this, you know, just kind of a, a reading through scripture? Is that, uh, maybe not going to get what we, what we want, uh, it to do? for us. Yeah. Well, maybe like a good academic, I'm going to step back and say, well, what do you mean by those questions? Uh, And this is a big part of my research has been trying to find out when people say biblical literacy, that it's gone down or declined or changed or people aren't biblically literate anymore. We need to improve biblical literacy. What are they talking about? And, um, and I found that there are that people's goals around the Bible differ um, according to their contexts and according to their traditions. And so sometimes really what people mean is they just want, they just want people to kind of get the main characters and storylines of the Bible so that if they heard them referred to in a sermon, for example, they would go, Oh yeah, yeah, I know who David is. I I know who Abraham is. Um, And that's a kind of, it's that's fine. It's a it's a sort of passive 
kind of literacy um, where you recognize information. And there are others who are much more interested in a kind of um, engagement with the text where it it feeds your life and your action and helps you be a more moral or um, ethical person. It helps you to make decisions, maybe helps you to be a good citizen. This is actually a, a tradition with pretty deep roots in the United States that goes back to the um, late 19th, early 20th century that says that if you if you really understand the Bible, it's going to make you into a good citizen. That's how you mm. know that you're biblically literate. Um, and then there's the um, a, a more contemporary picture that thinks of biblical literacy as a kind of um, literary or narrative understanding where you can see the whole picture. You understand the context. You see how it all fits together. Maybe you get why each piece was written in the period in which it was written. And this is what seminarians usually encounter when they go off to school and they realize, oh, my gosh, I never understood this about the Bible before. And it comes alive and many people incorporate it into their preaching. Then let me help people understand the historical background. Right. Um, you know, so um, that's a kind of narrative picture. And then there's like a there's an approach that's more about communication. Like, can the biblically literate person communicate with other people about the Bible? Can they articulate what they believe mm. about it and use it in their everyday life uh, in in um speech and in um, writing, you know, so it's more verbal. And then um, more kind of a postmodern approach, finally, that thinks of biblical literacy as this immersive, imaginative engagement where the Bible isn't really so much a word as it is a whole world that hmm. you're immersed in. And um, as you live inside of it, it transforms the way that you think about the rest of the world. So um, these different ways of thinking about biblical literacy, I think they all have positives and maybe some drawbacks, but uh, I think it helps to step back and ask, what are you trying to do when you read the Bible? And what are you trying to do as a teacher or a minister when you're trying to ask people to read the Bible? What are you hoping right. will be the outcome? Um, and so so when I um, think then about a, a project like this one, where you read through the Bible in a short period of time, I mean, really any of those goals could be um, sought after, but it seems like you're going to do an especially good job of, of fostering a kind of literacy that thinks about the whole picture because you're trying to do the whole thing. Right, right. That's really helpful. Thank you for that. So, yeah. so your your doctoral research and help me out in here. I, I think I think this is right, but I could be completely wrong. It it <laughs> focused. Um, you know, you 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 were researching biblical literacy, but. As dissertations go, they need to be really focused, uh, and yeah. so it was. W w it was focused on American adolescent girls, right, and how they make sense uh, of and use the Bible. Or am I? Yeah, am I yeah. Okay. Well, um, not just girls. It actually started out that way, okay. but um, uh, for a variety of reasons, as dissertations go, yeah, morphed into just looking to looking at adolescents in a couple of congregations. So, okay, like you cool. said, specific. Um, yeah, but and uh, I was really interested in bringing that. Um, topic together with a, a, a deeper, more historical perspective on the ways that Christians over time have thought about interpreting scripture. And um, so I think when, when you heard me speak, uh, I talked about um, the fourfold sense of scripture, which was a, a pretty common way um, in the medieval early church, uh, late early church to medieval period of thinking about how we go about understanding scripture. So, yeah, I want to get there uh, in a second. I, want, I think this, this fourfold sense of scripture was really awesome. And it's, uh, it relates to this kind of um, 
our roadmap kind of signed for for today. But before we yeah. do that, if you could share, so so I, I don't want to ask you to kind of boil down your dissertation down to a, a talking <laughs> point on a podcast, but if you could share something uh, just that you think the church should know about how young people are reading the Bible and and sure. and what it might say about us as as the church is reading the Bible, like what are we passing on to our young people, right. maybe even implicitly about how. Right. how we read the Bible, and what, what do we need to know? Fantastic, yeah. Well, um, I would say the main thing you need to know is that the way you teach the Bible dramatically affects the way young people understand and read the Bible. And this, on its face, sounds very obvious. Yeah. But <laughs> I, don't, I don't just mean what you teach, or you know, if you say the Bible is the Word of God, or the Bible is a sort of guidebook, or I don't just mean that. I mean, the method you use to teach the Bible has a profound impact on adolescents' understanding of it. And what I found was, um, looked at a couple different congregations, and I've since looked at some other places, but um, in one congregation, the primary method for engaging the Bible was through discussion. So sit in a circle with your Bible open in your lap, talk about it, and then they would together sort of figure out, what, what, is the, what does this text mean for me today? And in the other congregation, they used theater and drama almost exclusively. Huh. So uh, very seldom did I see people sit in a circle with Bibles on their laps talking about it. Instead, they were always acting out with stories. And then they would discuss their reactions to it, but they were inhabiting these characters all the time. And when I interviewed young people in these programs, the way they talked about the Bible was so different from one another. So in the congregation where they discussed the Bible, over and over, those adolescents said, I think to read the Bible, what, what you're supposed to do is you read a story or a passage, and then you ask, what's the moral that I'm supposed to get out of this? And Sometimes they really struggled because not every Bible story has an obvious moral. Right. But but they really or a moral sure that, that kind of scares us. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so then on the other side, uh, these adolescents were saying, "I think you're supposed to read the Bible and ask, who am I like in this story, and what is this supposed to mean for my life? Like how how is this supposed to kind of come alive for me?" Hmm. And both of these have advantages. So I'm not here to just to just criticize and say one of these is better than the other. But I think it's worth asking, what do you hope your young people will do with the Bible? Not just what, what will they know about it, but what will they do? And then how are you teaching in such a way that you're, you're actually giving them practice in doing that thing? Yeah. And it, it, it stands to reason that how we're going to teach them says something about what we think the Bible's purpose is. So if we yeah. think the Bible is is kind of a, a, a treasure, uh, you know, a treasure of moral truths that we need to kind of go and, and, and extract for our lives. And that's, that's what it is. Then of course, we're going to sit around a circle and try to figure out what that, what that moral is for our lives. Um, but that is only kind of one sense of, of what the scripture, uh, has to offer us. So let's, let's explore this fourfold sense a little bit. Um, so, you know, the sign that, that, that we have, uh, for today is that texts of scripture rarely mean one thing limited to the intent of the original author. And you've taught on, on this concept. Uh, I heard you give a talk a few years ago on this concept. So I'm hoping you can share with us a little bit about how you, you hear that, you know, that, that texts of scripture rarely mean one thing limited to the intent of the original author, but they, it actually can mean 
many things. Um, so how do we, for someone who might be hearing that and, and kind of be anxious about that and, and um, it can't just mean anything, um, what are the different, you know, boundaries and what are the different senses of scripture that we can, that we can um, get out of it? Yeah. Well, I think it's helpful to, to recognize that really, really early on, like Paul, people are talking about the letter and the spirit. And they're trying to get at the idea that what you see written means some things. And then we have all experienced that something that's written might take on a whole new meaning for us in a different time. Or we might read it for the fifth time or the tenth time, and suddenly we see something we never saw before. Or because of how uh, the context in which we're living, our new circumstances, um, a per- particular scripture, or even not even scripture, a novel could take on a different meaning for us. So uh, really early on, you have Christians who are saying, okay, you have the letter of scripture, and then you have its spirit. And they're, they're also trying to get the idea that the Holy Spirit inspires scripture, and yet they all knew it was written down by human beings. So they're also trying to bring those two together. The Bible isn't dropped from heaven. It's written over time. So how do you take it into account its human authorship and also its divine inspiration? So there's this basic twofold way of understanding scripture that says there's the there's the letter, the kind of plain sense or the literal sense. And then there are these spiritual senses, the different ways that the spirit might use the Bible to form us. Hmm. And so um, in the fourfold develops out of that more basic twofold. And the spiritual sense gets broken down into these three other senses. And this happens over a really long period of time in church history. But for those of us who kind of dwell in the present, it, it's helpful to know that for most of church history, this is how people thought about the Bible. Yeah. Uh, so, so we can give it some, some uh, credence, even if we're critical of it. Uh, so the spiritual sense got broken down into... Uh, what is sometimes called the moral sense or also the tropological sense. And this often used particular characters from the Bible as like moral exemplars, you know. So, okay, Abraham and Sarah showed such faith in God in setting out on this journey when God commanded them to do so, even though they didn't know where they were going. And so their example teaches us something. So the question that the moral sense asks us is, what does this passage of the Bible teach me to do? What does it teach me to do? So that's very action oriented. The second part of the spiritual sense is the allegorical sense. This one uh, has more press. Um, But (laughs) the idea of the allegorical sense isn't just that you're supposed to make these grand imaginative fantasies. It's that you look at the text and ask, is this pointing to some deeper reality about who God is or who Jesus is? Does it point to some bigger... um, bigger mystery of divine life or of the church. And so a lot of times, um, so for example, the most famous example is uh, Song of Songs or Song of Solomon in the Hebrew scriptures. And early Christians said, okay, yes, this is a love poem. This is about a man and a woman and their love for each other and sexual desire for each other. But maybe it's also about something else. Maybe it is about the love of Christ for his bride, the church, and the church's love for Christ. Hmm. And interestingly, Jewish scholars and rabbis did something quite similar, saying this is about God's love for Israel and Israel's love for God. So it's 
it's not saying, oh, it's not about a man and a woman. It's saying, yes, it's about that, and it's about something deeper. So that's the allegorical sense. And the question of the allegorical sense then is, what should we believe? What does this passage teach me to believe, or how does it illuminate what I believe? And then the last part of the spiritual sense is the anagogical sense. Anagogy is about um, things that we hope for. This is about the future. So what does this text point toward? What, is it, what does it uh, show me about the future of my soul with God, but also the future of the whole world? What kind of mystical realities does it reveal about human life? So um, if allegory sort of orients around who God is and who Christ is, anagogy is, a, is more about who we are in relationship to God. Hmm. And the question of anagogy is what should we hope for? What should we hope for? So um, in a wonderful way, then, these three spiritual senses, uh, they ask these questions of what should we do? What should we believe and what should we hope for? And then uh, Christian scholars over time said, look, look what they teach. The spiritual sense of the Bible teaches the cardinal virtues of faith huh. and hope and love. So Paul talks in 1 Corinthians about how the, the most important virtues are faith, hope, and love. These are gifts of the Spirit. And if the Scripture is inspired by the Spirit, then it can't just be about stuff we learn. It needs to be about our formation in the Spirit. And the Spirit wishes to form us in faith, hope, and love. So by pursuing these three questions of what should we do to love? What should we believe to have faith? What should we hope for to have the kind of hope God wants for us? Then we're formed in the way that God wants us to be formed. Hmm. That's really cool. That And, and so as we're reading through, you know, as we're reading text, do you, and, uh, do you imagine that, that, each of these uh, senses would be applied to every one of these texts, or do you, <laughs> sometimes sometimes it's 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 really oh this is a this is a, a passage of where uh, there's a moral exemplar and I need to kind of imitate that exemplar so that I might be formed in my love. I mean, is it are all of these senses in 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 each text? Uh, so I, when we I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like. <laughs> but... But, you know, there. this is a very good question that you're asking, and it's one that um, Christian scholars debated with each other a lot yeah. in the medieval period. So um, so I say I don't know because I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a lowly 21st century scholar, and I'm not even a Bible scholar. So, <laughs> um, but, but I'll say that, uh, that it's, I think, always worth asking, yeah. does this text teach me about action in some way about what I should do? Does it teach me something I might believe? Does it teach me something I might hope for? Yeah. So, um, which of these the do you think we, think we still relevant. which of these do you think we don't do enough of? So, I mean, I, I, I would think that, yeah. that in my experience, most often we actually get stuck on the, the literal sense, right? So like yeah, right. we figured out what's going on and either we're baffled by it or, um, it's like very clear to us. <laughs> what we should do. Um, mm -hmm. And then after the literal sense, kind of just the facts on the ground, it seems like we jump to the, the what should I do part. The moral exemplar mm -hmm. seems to be, at least in the tradition that I came, that I, that, that I came of age in was like, go and do likewise. Read and right. go and do likewise. Um, <laughs> yeah. And every once in a while, we would get to the what should I believe part. Um, yeah. Which of these are we bad at? And we need yeah, well, I think it depends on who the we is. And um, this is part of what's so interesting to me is that different communities and different traditions tend to 
get caught up in one or two of these questions and kind of neglect the others. So I think it's always just worth asking of your own community, wow, which one of these questions are we neglecting right now? You're right that I think in um, kind of mainline Protestantism for a long time, we've been caught up in the what happened and what should we do. Uh, before that, though, the, during the period of um, Protestant orthodoxy, so this is like, you know, kind of pre-20th century, Protestants were really much more interested in like what happened and what should we believe? Yeah. What what are the core things this thing teaches us we should believe? And the focus on what should we do was really a reaction to an overemphasis on what we should believe. So um, I think it's always just worth asking, are, are these in balance with each other? Yeah. Are we are we letting scripture teach us faith and hope and love? And um, and then, you know, and then I would add that um, you were asking before about about boundaries around this. Christians historically never just sort of left it there. Like how, you know, well, I ask those questions and then I come up with answers and that's the answer. But they always said that there are these other sort of boundaries around it. So they talked about the rule of love, like any meaning you take out of it needs to be interrogated according to the question of is, is what I take out of this loving and just, does this hurt other people or does it bless the world? And that's a really important one. Yeah, doesn't uh, doesn't Augustine faith, which, yeah. Augustine says yeah. something about this, like um, yeah. <laughs> that the, the the entire aim of reading the scriptures is love. And yes. on the other side of this, I think he says something like, even if you love and you've interpreted the Bible wrong, like you're still yeah. okay. Like you yeah. can go back and correct your theology, but even right. if you your interpretation has led you to love God and love neighbor, right. if you've gotten the facts wrong, that's fine. You can go back and like, you know, figure that out later. Uh, yeah, which, well, he doesn't say it's fine, but what he says is that... <laughs> yeah, I'm paraphrasing. Like, he has this great metaphor. He says it's like someone setting out on a journey to a faraway town. And along the way, they get lost and they leave the road and they wander through this meadow, but they eventually end up at the town. He huh. says that's what it's like if you read the scripture and you kind of get the literal sense wrong and you don't totally understand it, but it ends up forming you in love, then you've done what the spirit wanted to happen for you. And so, yes, that is okay. <laughs> Even though he says it would be preferable that they start. Right, the <laughs> right, right. That's yeah. good. That's good. Yeah, it is. It is good. Yeah. And, you know, but it's, I think also important for that Augustine understands love as being deeply related to justice. Yeah. So it's not just about, does this make me feel right? Nice feelings of love. But does this, because so it's not just about emotion, it's about how it affects other people too. Right, right. I, I wonder the, the what should I do um, and what should I believe, I can connect to those really well. The yeah. what should I hope for, I wonder if, that, if, if some people, and I'm, I'm including myself here, might not find that very satisfying. <laughs> like I'm reading the text and I'm, I am now going to hope for something like yeah. it's not as um embodied maybe maybe it is and i'm sure there's yeah. actions that re reflect that we that we have hope outside of our current situation um but i can see or i can i can hear a voice in my head of people being like well, i feel like i need to do something a little bit more oh, than sure. just hope but but it's yeah. important for us to remind remind ourselves remind others that hope is is a virtue of the christian faith yeah, uh, yeah, right. And it's not—it's not nothing. It's not just like a deferment. Um, right. It is an actual virtue we need to cultivate. Um, yeah, right. 
I wonder if maybe another way of thinking about it is to ask, what does this text promise? Hmm. What, what promise of God does it hold out to me? And then how do I lean into that promise, both in a kind of um, personal, spiritual, or emotional way, and then embodied in my actions? How do I live toward that promise? So if I believe that one day God is going to wipe away every tear, then that, that can give me hope to continue to do the kind of work I'm called to do, even if it seems like things don't get better. Right. So I, I think of friends I have who are social workers, and it's just extraordinarily painful to see how much difficulty some families face just in raising their children and trying to keep them safe. And if you don't have any hope that that will ever change, it's awfully hard to keep going. Right. But but a text that then holds out a promise of God that says God is at work changing the world that can then illuminate my own action now and um, more than illuminate it, it can motivate me. Yeah. That's great. Thank you for for educating us on this these many senses um, of the text. I, I have time for one more question. Um, sure. It's another one that I've I've asked everyone to kind of chime in on. And um, what is what's one because we just out of time. But what's one bad habit we need to give up when when reading the Bible? Oh, applying it to other people before we think about how it might affect ourselves. <laughs> Good. Yeah. This that is, came very quickly. And I say that because it's actually my bad habit. And um, huh. it can be a kind of judgmental thing where you go, oh, this person needs to hear that, you know. But uh, I think for people who are in ministry, it can be the question of, oh, how should I preach this? Before yeah. you stop and ask, what might the Spirit be saying to me today? Um, because I think the best preachers are those who've already sort of thought through that. And um the Christians I appreciate the most are the ones who've first allowed the spirit to work on them before they decide they need to work on everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's a really helpful reminder. Thank you. And, and thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Best to you as you, you take on this new, new role at Villanova and uh, in, you. your, in your work there. Thank you very much. All right. Well, blessings on your reading and uh, I'm sure that the spirit will be at work in all of you on all of you. Thanks, Christy. Take care. That's all for this episode. Thanks for joining us. If you're listening and you have questions along the way, either about something you're reading in the Bible or about content from this podcast, you can email those questions to beginwhereyouare at covenant.org. And make sure to subscribe on iTunes if you haven't yet. Thanks for listening.